0: Hello, imaginative writers, builders of new worlds, witches and warlocks and wizards. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here today with my co-host, Brooke Forner, and we're going on a journey today. But before we begin, check your supplies, make sure you have plenty of water, food, and at least some mountaineering equipment. Get lots of sleep. Always carry pen and paper with you. You never know when that electronic device will give up the ghost. Remember, too, that knowledge of the languages of strange talking animals is a plus when going on a real adventure. So study up and always, always keep your wits about you. Now, strengthen your resolve and get ready. You're about to plunge into the middle of everything. Those are actually the first words of Jeff Vandermeer's amazing writing book, appropriately titled Wonder Book. And the book takes the writer on a journey in more ways than one. It's a book written for the imaginative fiction writer rather than the realistic fiction writer that most writing craft books are geared towards. And each page is indeed sort of like a new world. And so I'm excited to explore it today as part of our Craft Minded series.
1: I know, me too. And the illustrations are so amazing. I almost couldn't read the book because I was so taken by the elaborate and intricate Otherworldly art. And the art is also functional in many cases as well because it serves to illustrate the craft discussion. I wish we could show this to listeners, uh, but one of our favorite illustrations in the book is the life cycle of a story. And the story is represented as a living organism, a frog, unicorn, dragon thingy. Mm. And it shows how a story is spawned, grows, and how it can go the wrong way, die, and even be revived. So, listeners, google it or better yet buy the book uh jeff actually has a whole website set up for wonder book uh that has a lot of free materials and so you can see it there or you can get a hard copy
0: yeah, I like the cute little tadpoles growing up in that illustration. Uh, it's a great life cycle of a of a book. And I, I do want to emphasize how this book goes beyond the boundaries of a lot of craft books. And I don't want to m- diminish other craft books, but this one isn't meant to necessarily be part of the MFA Writing Workshop Industrial Complex, although it should be. You know, its focus is on other worlds. And uh, Vandermeer says he hopes that writers of fantasy, horror, science fiction, magic realism, or any surrealist mode – You know, we'll find a home in the book. And as a more realistic writer, personally, however, I have to say that I, too, found a home in the Wonder Book, and that, that's because I think the best craft tool we have as writers is our imagination. So it was refreshing to read viewpoints that were maybe grounded in fantasy, if that's the right way I would put it, but they spark so many different ways of looking at a story or looking at the world in general. And that's actually one hazard, I think, of craft books. They're often full of the nuts and bolts of writing, but the most crucial tool of all is your imagination and your passion for your story. Yeah,
1: I like that Jeff calls the book a cabinet of curiosities, which is really a perfect description. And even for memoirists who we like to include or who I like to include, you know, any authors of creative nonfiction in general – It's important to explore flights of fantasy and be grounded in fantasy even, because accessing and nurturing that side of ourselves can help us explore and put words to the reality we experience. And, you know, I put reality in quotation marks. And Jeff writes that even the most mundane moments of our existence can be inhabited by a hidden complexity and with wonder. And I really just love that this book is a reminder of that.
0: Yeah, when I was reading through Wonder Book I thought of Matthew Salas's, who uh we had on a year or so ago to talk about his book Craft in the Real World and and Matthew said, Craft tells us how to see the world, which I thought was a really interesting because of the way it invites craft to be deconstructed and then reconstructed. So craft is a lens, in other words, and that lens might be different conventions of writing, cultural biases, genre expectations, you know, or many other things. And I think it's interesting in terms of this book because a lot of the craft discussion in Wonder Book is about how to see other worlds. But in seeing those worlds, we're also seeing our own world, of course.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering as I'm listening to you, Grant, do you have any examples of how fantasy novels or movies have reflected the real world, like how their craft helps us see the real world in the way that you're talking about?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm thinking um, most recently, I saw the movie Dune, and uh, when the remake came out, so not the original Dune, but you know, I, I just kept thinking about how so many things in that story. We're such an interesting commentary on our real world. You know, it covers environmental stress and human potential and altered states of consciousness and developing countries, revolutions against uh, imperialism. And that reminded me so much of our current times, even though it was a, a novel written way back in the 60s. So I think there's always something liberating for the writer to, to set these problems in another world. And by having them in another world, that doesn't diminish the issues for the reader. It actually, I think, magnifies them.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent, and it's I, it's what makes them more relatable, right? There's this otherworldly context for the issues of our day, and it's interesting too because, of course, history repeats itself. Uh, so I'm super excited to hear Jeff speak about these issues and more in this continuation of our craft series. We will be right back after this short break.
0: Hey, everyone. I just want to remind you that a big writing event is coming up in November. It's called National Novel Writing Month. And uh, here are some things to think about uh, if you've done it or even if you haven't done it. One... Part of its premise is not to wait until someday to write your novel, because someday tends not to happen. So make your novel a priority and write it today, you know, during National Novel Writing Month. And the way that that happens is is that National Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, it's a 30-day challenge to write 50,000 words of your story. So let's do some math. That's about 1,700 words a day. That's very doable. Let me tell you, I've seen it happen thousands and thousands of times. And I always describe NaNoWriMo as one part writing boot camp and one part rollicking party. And the boot camp part is, of course, you know, showing up every day and, and honing your discipline to to write and to keep writing and tracking your progress and being accountable. And then the party part is that we have this amazing community surrounding uh, NaNoWriMo. It takes place online, takes place in person. We've got a thousand volunteers around the world organizing writing gatherings in your community, probably. So yeah, write with others, have fun writing. Also, write the novel of your dreams. You know, we say a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. So sign up for that midwife. It's all free on NaNoWriMo.org. I'll see you in November in Nanoland. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Jeff Vandermeer, whose bio is so full of published books and awards that I can't really list them all. Jeff is a three-time World Fantasy Award winner and 14-time finalist. He's also won the Shirley Jackson Award and Nebula Awards, as well as been a finalist for the Hugo and Philip K. Dick Awards. His novels include the New York Times bestselling Southern Reach Trilogy, which includes Annihilation, Authority, and Acceptance. And his novel Born was recently a finalist for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. He also wrote a wonderful craft book, Wonderbook, which we're going to talk about today. And I want to note that he wrote a wonderful pep talk for NaNoWriMo that's available for free on our website if you want to check that out. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeff. Oh, absolutely. It's great to be here. Well, Jeff, I've read all sorts of craft books over the years. I'm, I kind of have a fetish or an addiction for them. And and I can safely say that Wonderbook is a, a singular writing book, You know, one that really stands out in truly wondrous ways from the others. And you describe Wonderbook as the definitive guide to writing imaginative fiction. So I was wondering if you can start by telling us what you mean by imaginative fiction and why you decided to write Wonderbook. Well,
2: I think that one reason I decided to write Wonderbook is because I've been searching for a way to do something unique about writing for a while. You know, I like writing books and I, I, you know, honestly could have written one that was just kind of the normal way before, but it felt like I'd be reinventing the wheel. And then Abrams image came along and asked, would I do a writing book with all kinds of illustrations and and art? And suddenly the idea of translating a lot of concepts and stuff into diagrams and art and a visual sense, you know, made everything come, come alive for me. In terms of doing something that hadn't been done before uh, and maybe reaching people who learn visually as opposed to by reading you know text about whatever subject is under discussion Uh, and then imaginative fiction is just uh, trying to cast as broad an umbrella as possible you know when i was growing up and reading books i was writing pretty surreal out there stuff and most of the writing books that i loved the most they had only examples of extremely mimetic fiction so, like, Revising Fiction is a great book, but it's all, like, Hemingway and, and people like that. And uh, other than that, what you'd find are science fiction or fantasy books on how to write, you know, science fiction or fantasy, as opposed to just a general writing book that includes examples from all over, including genre fiction. And so that appealed to me as well, just writing a general writing guide that incorporated those examples in, in that way. And just it just, uh, it, it just kind of came together, you know, kind of marvelously well uh i think
1: yeah, truly, and one of the things that makes Wonder Book so wondrous and so singular is that it's not just a writing book; it's an art book too. Uh, and so it's delightful just to page through and look at the artwork and illustrations as if it's a coffee table art book. And um, that's actually a great way to daydream about writing topics. And so you mentioned your publisher; you know that they approached you, and I'm curious about that visual approach in this book. You know, how much was driven by them? How much was driven by you? And then how is the writing? Or did you think about how the visual could support writing craft through, you know, both your words and the art?
2: Well, it's a unique situation. Uh, I had previously done a book with Abrams Image called The Steampunk Bible, and it had done really, really well. So for this this follow-up project, uh, they did something that you never see a publisher do. They were willing to just give me the advance plus the fee to pay a designer and the artists, And they allowed me to just go off and design it and bring it to them basically camera ready. (laughs) And uh, that was really the only way it could be done because there were a lot of stops and starts. And so there wasn't anything I could present directly to like an internal Abrams image designer. And we were doing things with some of the art and design that had never really been done for a creative writing book. You know, so again, there were stops and starts. Uh, There were two principal people involved, John Colthart, who was like the main designer, who's this English designer who's just done a ton of stuff uh, that, that, you know, you'll definitely have seen even if you don't know his name. And then the principal artist was Jeremy Zerfoss who had a great pop culture sensibility to his art, but could do a lot of different things. And what I loved about Jeremy is he was completely self-taught. So the other thing I was having a difficulty with was I would ask for something impossible. And because of a certain kind of training, someone would say, you can't do that. And it's like, well, but we kind of need to try. (laughs) and we kind of need to fail to get to a point where we know what is going to work. So working with Jeremy, uh, he was very patient about, you know, dealing with my rough sketches. At one point it's like, well, this world monster that's eating this other monster uh, specifically portray an advanced metaphorical thing that writers do. And we decided, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of the things that, that seemed totally outlandish did work. I mean, there's a diagram I love in there about, uh how when a sto- unfinished story dies, different parts of it get used in other stories, and it re kind of combines with a different creature uh and that was just a lark at first. It was like, "Is this going to even work and yet it seems to be a lovely and poetic way of of describing it and so somehow we got there. There was a point at which I was looking at the parts of the book, and I was like, "Are we actually going to have a book to deliver and then suddenly everything kind of kind of just synergistically came together.
0: Well, a lot of writing books, you know, they make big promises, and especially those that essentially promise to teach you how to write a best selling book or design the perfect plot. And so I like this quote from you. You wrote, It's not about achieving mastery because I firmly believe you never achieve mastery. You just acquire more tools and more experience. And so I was wondering if you could tell us. I guess more about what that pursuit of mastery means to you as a writer and and maybe even just some stories or, or about the important tools you've picked up at different stages of your writing journey?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I, I do think that for me personally, it's really important to keep pushing myself. I get bored easily. If I sit down and I start writing a novel and I feel like I know how to write it right off the bat, and, you know, I, I'm suspicious. I always want to feel like The next thing I'm writing, I feel like I've never written anything before and have that kind of nervous feeling and kind of, you know, at the same time, I'm continually reading books and picking out pieces of technique uh, and ways things are being done and like plugging them into maybe a draft of something I'm working on. If it's going well, I'll just plug stuff in and see how it works, kind of like disassemble it, and then maybe it will stay in the the narrative and transformed way or maybe I'll kick it out again, but, you know, continually, you know, N- not not sitting there and saying just because I have so many novels out that I know what I'm doing all the time because there's so many different approaches to writing and and I want to write in so many different ways and so so that's really what the the tools thing is is just to keep learning and keep keep you know by learning being able to tell different kinds of stories um, I uh, I think that it's hard to say specific things except that early on something that helped me a lot was to, to read a passage that I really loved and then try to rewrite it from memory and then compare it to the passage, the original passage, and see what I had changed.
0: Hmm.
2: And sometimes what I had changed, I thought, was, for me, at least uh, better. And obviously, a lot of times it was worse, but it was a way of kind of inhabiting the text. Uh, so little tricks like that. Um, you know, I do a lot of method acting, I would say, and I, I discuss this a little bit in the book. But, you know, there was a point on authority, uh, the second novel of Southern Reach, where I was really stuck and I had a deadline. I couldn't imagine this, this place that this guy breaks into. So I, I went into my backyard and I broke into my own house. Huh. And then I just wrote that scene. Wow. <laughs> and it worked. And I, I was shocked that it worked. But under the pressure of that deadline, something really amazing occurred, which is to say that I not only broke into my own house <laughs> for a scene and it worked, but, but I was inhabiting the character in such a way that I've started using that even when I don't have a deadline, you know, like, Putting myself in a particular situation, not breaking into people's houses, and trying to react and be like the person that I'm writing about, not myself, and it really has helped. So, so, so sometimes you'll you'll be in a pressure situation and you can find ways to to make that work for you. I even have a piece online, I think, still about how to write a novel in two months.
1: Yeah, well, you can do it in one month with NanoRimo <laughs> coming up, right? So I had the luxury of two months. So. Well, Jeff, I was going to ask you about whether writing a craft book is a good way to learn it, but you sort mm-hmm. of already answered that it is and it was. And so, is there one particular example of that that you can share from Wonderbook that you learned something in working on your own book that you applied, you know, in the future? Well,
2: I think it's it's more that in deciding to have sidebar articles. From other writers, I learned a lot. So, like, I actually asked Kim Stanley Robinson to write about why exposition is actually good. (laughs) Mm. And um, at the time, I really didn't believe that exposition was that great a thing to have in mass quantities. And yet, after reading his essay, and putting it in the book, you know, I, I didn't actually think that it, it would apply to something I was doing. But at a later date on, on on a novel called Dead Astronauts and a couple other pieces, I actually went back and reread that essay because I needed to have a massive amount of exposition that was incredibly thrilling <laughs> at the same time. So so the, the really hilarious thing is sometimes I do find myself in a situation where I go back to Wonder Book and I'm like, I can't remember what that, that great, amazing person who is not me but is in the book. Uh, said about this thing but i I think it's going to help me
0: on on this new novel that's a great story jeff i recently wrote a craft book and and my agent and publisher kept wanting me to make it uh, more functional uh and more marketable you know with very actionable things to do in it and and i had actually envisioned the book as being more of a meditation on an aesthetic of writing and i think we found a happy middle ground but that tension between function and reflection made me think about how learning to write isn't necessarily just about learning all of these craft mechanics, but it's also about nurturing a creative mindset. And you write about this. You said in talking about the imagination and the world's prioritization of the functional over play, you wrote, at best, the imagination can be seen as heat lightning with no real weight or effect instead of the source. At worst, it's dismissed as frivolous and a waste of time with no real-world applications. And this is a long-winded question, but I was wondering if you could talk more about the role of of what I'll call a craft of the imagination, so to speak, and where that fits in with craft on the page.
2: Well, I mean, I've always been struck. One day I was struck by, and I don't know if it was something because of something I read in the book or not, but I was struck just walking down the street and realizing everything I was seeing that was a human-made structure or anything else. Event was at some point in someone's imagination. And what I was looking at was an accumulation of really good imaginations and some really terrible imaginations in the flesh. And uh, so it struck me that, you know, this is something that is incredibly important all the way around, not just in the so called creative arts. And it is tied to play because play is a way of extrapolation, it's a way of imagining something that doesn't exist and maybe then it will exist. And and I think also that uh, one example in Wonder Book that I love is actually from uh, an anecdote by a writer named Carol Bly. And she gives this anecdote where she's like, what's the difference between the family where the kid comes home and the dad at dinner says, you know, what are the new neighbors like? And the kid kind of jokingly says, well, they're a family of bears. <laughs> you know, what is the difference then between the dad who says, no, they're not. Tell me who they really are. And the dad who is like, oh, yeah, I saw one of them the other day in the backyard, you know, eating honey or something, you know, what what are the other ones like, you know, and uh, kind of continuing that sense of play and sense of the imagination. And, and I, I think that when we're able to do that, it's kind of an act of generosity to each other. And it's an act of storytelling right off the bat. Uh, and, and, and so it's hard to always quantify and say what it leads to. But usually it does lead to something.
1: Hmm. It's, it's such a great anecdote. Thank you. And, you know, Wonder Book is also a collaboration of so many creative minds, and it has self, uh, all these sidebars and essays from writers like Ursula K. Le Guin, George R. R. Martin, and Neil Gaiman. Uh, I like my reading to be full of voices, so I appreciated turning the page and wondering who would appear for the next cameo. I'm wondering if there were any particular pieces that struck you or made you feel differently about your own writing, and whether there was a particular favorite, you know, among those cameos.
0: Well,
2: I think um, I like Charles Yu's piece a lot about uses of time and playfulness. I think also this idea I had of um, putting in these disruption dragons, which are literally like these long strips in the margin where. I had a writer read a chapter and then disagree with something in it huh. and give what they, they actually thought. So those little tiny pieces, there's one from like Nathan Ballingrud, who recently, uh, recently had, uh, his Lake Monsters thing made into a TV series that I loved because he's always kind of gruff, but I, I, I love him to death for that. Um, and I think just in general, I like the idea of this book being so layer that you could flip through it and you could read different layers at different times. Maybe you just key on the disruption dragons and then the information that they're responding to. Maybe you just look at the diagrams. And I think one of the most fulfilling things is just that every grade level has used this book. Like I have teachers in middle school say, I pulled this particular diagram out and used it, or I, I did this particular page. I've had musicians tell me they use it. I mean, um, so so this whole idea of play and, and imagination is enough imbued in the book in a general way uh, and in the layering that I think it, that a lot of people respond to it for different reasons.
0: It's a great way to present it as as layers. And I love picking it up and just paging to a random page and seeing what I find there, uh, because it is that kind. Well, you call it a cabinet of curiosities, and that's the way it feels uh, as a reader. But in closing, Jeff, uh, about a year ago, we had on the author Matthew Salases, and um, he had just published his book, Craft in the Real World. And he said uh, that craft tells us how to see the world. I thought that was a very interesting definition of craft. So I was wondering what that definition might mean to you, especially as a writer of imaginative fiction.
2: Well, I think craft, to some degree, is always kind of verging on wanting to allow you to write a character better for for lack of a better way of putting it yes it's 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 involved with plot and structure everything else but for me where everything comes out of character including structure to some degree because it's really about the way the character sees the world you know that's what the craft is about um and sometimes it's craft where the reader won't necessarily see it and they're not meant to until a second or third read, but that's also a kind of layering that I find compelling. And there's things in there that I will only ever know um, that are the craft of autobiography that's changed into fiction. And that also is about character. So, so I read it as a, a character thing. And then I also read it as, you know, you do a lot of subconscious things as a writer. And you need to know the difference between the subconscious things that you need to let be organic and the mechanical things you can work on. Uh, So there's a craft to, you know, nurturing your imagination and your subconscious and allowing it to do what it's going to do. And then there's the conscious thing of of acquiring knowledge, so to speak on a a conscious level that, that then helps inform that and allows that subconscious impulse to, to be something that, that a reader responds to if that makes any
0: sense that makes a lot of sense well thank you so much for joining us jeff i think this will help a lot of writers uh in november with nanowrimo and beyond
1: so appreciate it jeff thank you
2: thank you very much again for having me on
1: we'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend
0: Welcome back, everybody. Today's book trend is getting blurbs for your book once it's published. Um, And this is on my mind because I just finished getting blurbs for my latest book. And, you know, as readers, we know that blurbs on the back of books are you know at least somewhat contrived um we know the blurbs are about marketing you know that they're not necessarily a real testimonial but blurbs work you know when i pick up a book in the bookstore i almost always read the blurb first and people have used blurbs for literally hundreds of years to sell books so i thought it'd be interesting to explore this topic for listeners because this getting of the blurbs and asking people to give you blurbs is always like a super challenging thing and you know like when i Got them for my most recent book. You know, like anybody, I want the the kind of biggest, best authors possible. You know, I want them to have this name recognition and to add credibility to the book and to write a good blurb. And it's always a little bit weird because I usually end up asking authors who I don't necessarily know And I did that again this time. I emailed, let me think, I think two of the four people I got blurbs from, I didn't know at all. Um, And so I was just amazingly touched that they would write a blurb because also uh, since I write blurbs, I know how time-consuming and taxing it can be. It's just another thing on your to-do list. And it, it takes me, it does take me time because even though I might not read somebody's whole novel, I'll read enough of it to write a good blurb. And in writing a good blurb, I want to do it in a very thoughtful way. And so I have had authors, you know, I had one author tell me that he was full up for blurbs and that he would write kind of this um, very stereotypical conventional blurb of like, hey, look at this glittering debut or this wonderful new follow-up. And I actually took that blurb from him because he had a great name and reputation. And then another blurber, this is for a past book. I was super gratified when she said she'd write the blurb. But then weeks went by, months went by. I sent her at least two or three follow-ups. It's so tough to remind somebody to write a blurb for you. But I'm so glad I did do those follow-ups because she gave me this wonderful blurb in the end. So... Brooke, I'm curious if you have any interesting tips about blurbs from the publishing or editing or even the author side.
1: Yeah, I mean, blurbs are among the most highest ranking concerns authors have when they want to sign with us. And so I will just say what I tell my authors, which is make a list, sure bets, reaches and then pie in the sky people to solicit and it's important to remember that the big name authors are super busy and they get asked a lot and so they're not always likely to lend their name to a book that they don't have any connection to at all so that's pretty impressive that you got two people like that Uh, I'm sure you wrote a very flattering letter which is also yeah. (laughs) yeah as part of it you know you do want to send a personal note talking about why you love their work and why you're hoping they'll blurb your book And, you know, people ask me what you said, you know, are endorsements, aka blurbs, even still that important? And the answer is yes, you know, because the industry is built around this premise that what other people have to say about your book is what drives awareness and sales. And that is definitely true.
0: Yeah, I was going to add one little bit to that thought is that we often think about blurbs as a way to sell the book to readers. But a friend of mine recently told me how she got blurbs after she finished her book. And then she used those blurbs in her proposal to engage agents and editors, you know, to give her more, her book, more credibility up front. And I thought that was super fascinating and something to think about, especially if you're a first time author. I also use my blurbs to pitch my book. For coverage in publications. Uh, for example, I just reached out to several writing publications to see if they'd like to excerpt my new book. And it was great to include a blurb from a notable author in that query. And I do this for all press outreach. In fact, you know, when I reach out to podcasts or or to reviewers, I always include the blurb up top and, you know, sometimes bold it or set it, somehow format it so that it grabs attention to the reader. So, Brooke, you talked a little bit about the nuts and bolts of blurbs, you know, but, I'm, but I want to dig into that a little bit more. How many blurbs should a writer ask for? And is this a better role for the editor? I'm curious. You know, you might have more connections than the author. And then when in the publishing process should an author ask for a blurb?
1: I'll start with the last question. The earlier, the better. You know, for big name authors, you probably want to give them at least four months, if not more. And I think the writers should do the asking. I mean, if your publisher or your editor has a connection or directly knows that person, that's one thing. And I have asked for many, many blurbs over the years on behalf of my authors. But you know, if not, then I always say the author should do it. So the other thing is that the author is always going to be more heartfelt in their ask, usually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in In terms of the question of how many, at least, I mean, one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Let's start there.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, two or three on the back cover of a book is definitely sufficient and is really all you need. And then we have authors, of course, who just get, you know, 20 to 30, which is a lot, but you can use them for anything. You know, you can have a praise sheet, you can have tons of blurbs on your Amazon page. So I would say the sweet spot is somewhere in the range of uh, three to 10.
0: Okay, wow. I never even thought of the 10 or 20. But as I said, you know, I'm always immensely thankful that someone, especially the people I don't know, are doing what is free labor for my book. So I want to tell listeners that I always write an effusive and heartfelt thank you note, but I also buy the Blurber a $50 gift certificate at their local bookshop. And That gets a little expensive. I'm only going for three or four here, not 10. But when I think about it, $50 really doesn't cover the time they've put into a thoughtful blurb. And certainly I get more than $50 worth of uh, bang for the buck from it. What's your take on the thank you process, Brooke?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's very generous. Uh, And please, folks, do not forget to send your blurbers a copy of your book. That's also a thoughtful follow through and they've done an enormous favor for you. So you don't want to just get the blurb and then move on and not remember how big a deal that support really is
0: yeah and i want to say one more thing about blurbs and that is there's something known as blurb karma so once you get blurbs you you owe the world blurbs um so i try to blurb as many people's books as i can but i'm also afraid i can't blurb them all so it's it it is just super tough as an author but i genuinely try to blurb those people i know who i've worked with and even though i can't read the entire book um i do try to read enough of it to get a flavor of the writing because i want my blurb to be honest
1: I love that. And, uh, you know, on a word on karma. I think there's another kind of karma that is listening karma and guest karma and right-minded karma. And uh, we try to push it out to you and we feel it coming back to us. So thank you for that. We will be back next week with another Craft Minded episode. Looking forward to it, Grant.